Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of Fashion Law Network. On today's episode, we have a special guest, beauty fashion lawyer Antonella Colella. Antonella works at the Snyderman Law Group, which is a boutique business law firm, and they have offices in Philadelphia and New Jersey. She provides legal counsel to entrepreneurs, business owners, and investors of both growing and established companies, and she really enjoys helping creatives realize their dream of entrepreneurship in areas of beauty and fashion. So I recorded an interview with Antonella where we discussed various aspects of cosmetic and beauty law. I had a really fun time getting to know her, and I think you guys are really going to like this interview. So here we go. Enjoy. Hi, Antonella. Thanks so much for joining me today. So tell me about your journey into beauty fashion law. Okay, well, thanks for having me. Um, So it definitely is a journey. Um, I've really been a follower of the fashion industry since high school, really. And it wasn't just about loving shopping or clothes. It was really, you know, pouring over fashion magazines and actual fashion news. Years ago on the E! Channel, they used to actually show fashion shows and they had actually a fashion news show called Fashion File that I loved and watched all the time. Oh, I remember that one well. Yes, (laughs) yep. So my undergraduate degree is in finance, and in college, I thought I would be an executive at Versace in New York or Ralph Lauren, but then I decided to go to law school during my senior year of college, and then I thought, well, I'll just be a lawyer at Versace or Ralph Lauren. Um, But when I graduated law school, I got a job doing litigation. I was actually defending public entities in New Jersey against tort claims and civil rights claims, but I realized I didn't want to be a litigator. Um, I wasn't really following my journey of where I wanted to be in life. That's not what I wanted. I was more of a business person. So I found a job as an in-house counsel at an engineering and tech firm. And when you're in-house, you're essentially a business person with a law degree. So it did suit me really well. But after five years, I got an opportunity to join a law firm uh, with a former boss of mine and really grow it. And, you know, it gave me the freedom and opportunity to do what I like. So I started with representing one skincare company, and then I just started seeking out other clients in that space, putting myself in situations where I would meet the kinds of clients that I wanted to work with. So for me, it's been clients in beauty, fashion, and kind of the lifestyle brand categories. Some of it was word of mouth. Some of it was reaching out to beauty influencers to get on their radar and get on their social media platforms. I'm also offering some webinars, but it was completely intentional on my part. So I actually sought that out and I'm still seeking out the type of client I want to work with. As you know, you know, marketing and getting clients never ends. Um, and I think just after so many years of being an attorney, for me, it, it became uninspiring. So I thought I have to work with people and clients that I like and enjoy so that it doesn't feel like that. I'm still young and I have a lot of years left to work, so I want to enjoy them. That's great. Very interesting. And what are some of the most common legal issues uh, in the beauty cosmetics industry? So for beauty and cosmetics, a huge area of concern is whether the product 
is a cosmetic or a drug under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So that really determines how it's regulated, what laws it needs to comply with, etc. Um, but, you know, there, there are other things. Uh, there are labeling requirements that are regulated by the Fair Packaging and Labeling Act. Finding a manufacturer and negotiating a proper manufacturing agreement is important. And, for example, you know, some of the things that you would want to look out for are, you know, how much is the manufacturer producing for you? Are you using their formulation? Are you adding to it? Are you using your own formulation? Um, are they testing the product for you? If you don't know, or for those of you that don't know this, many brands don't, in fact, formulate their own products. Um, they use these big labs that have formulations, and then they essentially buy or license um, the formulation and sell it as the brand product. Um, some other issues are supply chain considerations. You know, where is it manufactured? How is it getting to your customers or how is it getting to you? A distributor and licensing agreements are also important. So if you're using a distributor to sell your products, you need to have proper contracts. Or if you want to license your brand, that's a different set of, of protections and a different set of legal documents, really. Um, also, the proper way of advertising is also big because that can determine um, if your product is viewed as a cosmetic or a drug. Um, another you know, very important thing is, are you using influencers to advertise your product? That comes with another set of issues that you need to work through as well. Um, but then, you know, there are legal issues that affect any business. For example, are you properly structured as a business? Um, do you have standard contracts that protect you? Do you have correct intellectual property protections in place? And then, you know, everybody's favorite is funding. Are you, do you have money to, to self-fund or are you taking on investors? Um, so, you know, these are just some of the, you know, very important issues that come up. Okay, now I'd like to focus on the important facet of beauty law, which is the difference between a cosmetic and a drug. Can you expand a little on this? Sure. So just to give a background, so the legal framework for cosmetic and beauty law is this. So the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, um, that was passed in 1938. So that was really the last cosmetic law that was passed in the U.S., um, so that oversees the safety of cosmetics, and it authorizes the FDA to regulate that. Um, but that's not really what happens. It's not the reality. The FDA really only regulates tainted products or you know falsely packaged products. They don't really regulate or pull from the market potentially dangerous items, and they don't really monitor the ingredients so much. Um, and you know this is on a federal level. I know that some states do do that. So under the act, a cosmetic is something that you, you know, either apply it or you rub it on your body or you pour it onto your body for the purpose of cleansing or beautifying. By contrast, a drug is something that's intended to cure or treat or diagnose um, a structure or function of the body. So, you know, as we know, drugs are heavily regulated by the FDA. So if it's not your intention to be a drug, you need to pay attention to, you know, what's on your label, your ingredients, and then what's on your advertising material. Because the FDA, you know, they do, they have the power to look at these things to determine whether your product is a cosmetic or a drug. Um, for example, a shampoo that claims to cleanse your hair, that's a cosmetic. 
but a shampoo that intends to reduce dandruff or if it says it's curing your dandruff or even if it uses the word anti-dandruff is a drug because it falls into the definition of you know intending to cure or treat a function of the body but also because an anti-dandruff shampoo actually contains a drug which is pyrithione zinc so another example is a face wash is just a cleanser or you know a cosmetic product unless it says you know reduces or treats acne you know that those have salicylic acid or benzoyl peroxide so those are considered drugs interesting that's a great explanation. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, you know, going further, the FDA actually posts warning letters on their website. Um, These are public and it sends them to, you know, real companies. And for example, there is one that was sent to Dr. Brandt Skincare, which is a very popular skincare that's you know sold in Sephora. So they were actually going after their marketing complaints that fall into the definition of a drug. So they were saying, you know, what you're saying about your skincare um, makes it a drug because it affects the structure of the body. So the wording that they had um, and that they, the FDA had a problem with were, for example, that it boosts collagen production, repairs damaged skin, helps fade dark circles, or reduce under eye bags. So we these we hear these all the time. <laughs> this is these are on you know products on TV. They're on products themselves. They're in magazines. I mean these are very common ways of advertising. But the FDA was saying that those words put that into the category of a drug, and so they need further regulation. So you know you have to be careful about how you advertise and market. But again, I mean it's going back to, you know, these were just warning letters. Um, and if you look on the FDA site, there's not many. So yes, the FDA does have the power to go into and kind of, you know, regulate these areas, but they don't do it as much. And it's not, you know, a very, um, you know, big practice of theirs. Another interesting area is essential oils. You know, those have become very popular and those have claims that they relieve stress, that they help you sleep, you know, that they treat anxiety. Those are, you know, those are drug claims. Um, But are they being regulated as a drug? Probably not. Um, Also, you know, CBD topical oil is another one. You know, that's no doubt a drug. Um, But, you know, the FDA is not really regulating that um, as much either. Right. And which particular areas of the law do you have to be proficient in if you want to be a lawyer in this beauty industry? So I think, you know, you have to understand the legal framework um, and the laws that govern this area, which I described. Um, But for me, you know, I I say that I'm a business attorney with experience in beauty industry. So I'm looking at risk mitigation for you. You know, I need to see that your business is set up properly, um, that you have the right relationships with vendors, with suppliers, manufacturers. Are you using employees or are using independent contractors? So that means having the right contracts and for all those people. So you need to have some IP knowledge as well, intellectual property. Um, You need to know, you know, whether your client needs patents or trademarks. So it's really a little bit of everything. You know, you have to be business savvy. Um, You need to know a little bit about employment law, I would say, and also IP law. So it's, you know, it's contract heavy, but, you know, a lot of industries, you know, are as well. Right. Now let's focus on the various intellectual property protections that are important in the beauty world. 
Okay, so patents are definitely important. You know, if you're making a new formulation of something, or even if you change an existing patent formulation slightly, it's worth discussing you know, with a patent attorney whether it makes sense to protect it via patent. Trademarks and protecting your brand are very important as well. Um, you know, beauty products are really all about branding. People don't like using generic beauty products um, because it's not as cool. And you know that's why there's places like Sephora and Ulta, and they're so popular. And people you know spend huge amounts of money in there because it's all about the brand experience. So, trademarking your logo and your name are very important. Otherwise, you know you really aren't protected, and someone can use your name and, and use your your logo. Um, trade dress is also a form of intellectual property protection also. So that's really protecting the shape of your packaging, like uh, the shape of your mascara or the shape of a perfume bottle. Um, and trade secrets are actually more popular in the beauty industry because some people in beauty, they get scared of um, getting patent protection because you need to disclose all your ingredients. So they consider their formulations to be trade secrets, and then they protect them with confidentiality agreements, and they tell people you know, they cannot disclose them outside of their company, etc. Interesting. Now, in terms of patents in the beauty industry, I'll just add in here that I've discussed various utility patents under the beauty branches of various fashion houses I've discussed um, during my podcast. So basically, utility patents protect the way something works, the functionality of inventions. So for example, Christian Dior owns a really popular utility patent for the formulation of an anti-aging cream containing algae extract. And many other beauty lines of these major fashion houses also own utility patents for things like anti-aging and moisturizing creams. Those are probably the most popular utility patents that I've seen in the beauty industry. Um, then another type of utility patent that some beauty brands own are for beauty tools like perhaps a novel mascara wand or a novel type of nail dryer. For example, Yves Saint Laurent owns one. And they disclose it as being in the shape of a clamshell, which turns on and off when you open or close the lid. So they have a whole process for the electrical circuit there and how that works. Another interesting utility patent is owned by Chanel, which is for the dispensing mechanism of a cosmetic. So here the patent protects the unique dispensing mechanism of a cream or other cosmetic uh, gel, for example, this mechanism can be done using a spring or pressure-loaded system. So there's lots of different types of utility patents that beauty companies should take advantage of in order to really secure their intellectual property rights to the fullest extent. And then in addition to utility patents, beauty companies can also obtain a design patent. This is usually done to protect the appearance of packaging for their cosmetics. An applicant can get a design patent on the packaging only if the appearance and design of the packaging is new and unique, and a design patent protects only the appearance of the article. So you're not going to be protecting any structural or utilitarian features of your um, product. And one popular design patent owned by beauty companies is for the novel shape of a perfume bottle or a cosmetic jar. Another popular one can be for the novel shape of a beauty tool or accessory, like the outside look of a new kind of eyelash curler. So as you guys can see, a lot of these overlap with the items that Antonella talked about. It all kind of is full circle if you guys want to 
protect your IP rights to the fullest if you're a beauty company. Now, can you tell me about the process from initial idea for a beauty company to execution? How does how does that work? Yeah, so I mean, it depends is the answer. I mean, basically, you're going to start with an idea. Um, and I'd recommend first checking your name and your logo to see if it's in use already. Um, you can check the USPTO site for trademarks or patents that cover your product or your branding. And you can get an attorney to help you with this. Um, but it, you know, it does really depend on what type of beauty business you're starting. There's so many avenues that you can go into. So you can develop a product yourself. So you'll definitely need intellectual property protection, patents, trademarks, and just overall branding. Um, you'll need a strong manufacturer agreement with your manufacturer. Um, and you may need distributor agreements if you want to sell it in stores or to distributors. You might want to license that product to other businesses. Um, but, you know, you really can be a retailer also of beauty products. If you're brick and mortar, you'll need a lease that you need to review. Um, if you're online, there are various protections you need there for your website. So, you know, you could also be a beauty influencer. And those are different contracts um, really altogether. Right. And do you see an increase in these green beauty companies? Do you think this is like an ongoing trend? Absolutely. It's so huge now in beauty. I think everybody's looking for clean, natural, organic products. You know, before years ago, if a beauty product was clean, quote unquote, it didn't work properly. You know, the colors weren't vibrant, the product didn't stay on, um, it didn't work or it didn't smell as good. And it just wasn't, you know, as it was, wasn't an all around good product. Um, you know, and you, you could also only get them in certain stores, a specialty store or a natural store. But that really has changed so much. So Sephora has sections devoted to clean beauty now. Um, and the formulations really work and they're great. Um, so, you know, if they are comparable to regular non-clean products and you're getting the same kind of efficacy without the harsh chemicals, why wouldn't you use it? Now, I've noticed here in California where I'm located just at a state local level, I've been hearing quite a bit of news regarding the potentially harmful effects of chemical sunscreen. So, typically those containing oxybenzone and avobenzone, and this corresponding trend toward more of these green or so-called physical mineral sunscreens, which typically use zinc oxide or titanium oxide instead of these chemical sunscreens, which some medical reports say that um, don't enter the bloodstream as readily as the previous chemical sunscreens. Although it's worth noting that the FDA has indicated that they don't have enough information at this time to determine whether the chemicals are in fact causing harm. Although I've noticed here in Los Angeles that a lot more of these green sunscreen brands are cropping up using only mineral sunscreens, even at my local pharmacy here where I live. So that's interesting. And also in California, there's a really popular green beauty only chain of stores. They're based out of California, but they're all over the country now. They rival Sephora. They're called Credo Beauty. Their first store opened back in 2015 in San Francisco. And now it's reported that Credo Beauty is the largest clean beauty retailer in the world with stores across the nation. They're partnered with over 130 brands. And the chain claims that they're really unique because they have a very high standard for their selection process for their products. Some really unique factors that they look for are whether 
the ingredients in their items are sourced from nature? Are they synthetic or some kind of combination? And another interesting factor they look at is related to sustainability, where they ask questions like, how is this ingredient grown, mined, or traded? Was it shipped around the world during its production? So I think this is a really interesting trend in the beauty industry. And yeah, I agree with Antonella. I think we're going to see a lot more of this in the future too. And in talking about beauty trends, how do you think social media advances, especially Instagram and YouTube, impact the world of beauty now? Well, beauty influencers are really a huge part of this industry. If you're a beauty brand, either new or established, you'll need to get influencers to review your products or advertise it on their social media platforms. It's really a main source of advertising and you know gets you exposed to millions of people. And it does come with its own legal issues, though. Influencers and this type of advertising are regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. So I recommend that you have a contract with an influencer. You need to set the ground rules of what they are saying. Are you gifting them the product or what do you want them to say exactly? How often should they post about it also? So I've come across issues where products are gifted to be reviewed or advertised And then the influencer doesn't appropriately tag the company or they don't really say the right thing. And that's really lost revenue for the company. And it's also lost product. So it is important to spell out exactly what you want an influencer to say. Um, You know, kind of a novel issue that has come up is actually the tax implications of influencers receiving those free products, is it taxed or not? There is a view that it is considered income because some influencers are paid with product, so it should be taxed. But then you have questions about how do they determine the value? Is it considered inventory? So it's an interesting issue that is going to be played out. Great. And what is your advice for aspiring beauty entrepreneurs? So I would say you know, make sure you're protected and have the right setup from the beginning. Hire an attorney to help you navigate, uh, you know, really from the beginning because it will save you money later. Um, and as a beauty entrepreneur, you know, you may be a creative person and you need to have someone on your team that really sees like the business and legal side to get the whole picture for you. Um, those people are going to be able to see risks before you do and just really help you navigate through them. Also, decide on your branding early on so that you can check out if there are competing trademarks or patents or if there are other brands that maybe do the same or similar things. But in the end, you know, really just go for it. And if you have a vision, then you should go and make that reality. And can you tell us about your upcoming webinars and conferences if people want more information about this? Yeah, so I I am participating in a virtual beauty summit at the end of the summer. It's um, in August 25th, where I'll be talking about, you know, what you need legally if you're in this industry. Um, There's going to be a QA and a session, too. So that's being run by a beauty influencer. Um, And I'm also doing some webinars in the fall being run by local Philly fashion groups. Um, But if you connect with me on LinkedIn or on Instagram, you know, I'll have more information if anybody's interested. Great. Now on a personal level, tell me your current top three favorite beauty items. Okay. So I love um, a face oil by Avoila. Um, It's made with avocado oil. It's really, it's organic and it's really, um, you know, rich and luxurious and it's just, you know, you feel good. It really nourishes your skin. 
Um, and then, you know, every day I use the ISDIN, um, the mineral sunscreen that you, you know, you talked about a little, a little bit about. So it, it has the zinc in it, but it doesn't leave that, that white cast that, you know, some sunscreens leave on you. So it's really, you know, good for you and it doesn't, um, really change the the color of your makeup and then lastly ilia which is a new clean beauty brand they have a multi-stick that you know i use on my cheeks i use it on my eyes on lips it stays on it works really well and it's really good for someone on the go like me Great. I'll have to try those. Some of my favorites are the Kate Somerville Exfoliate. It's a exfoliator. It's not too harsh. I've been using it for years. Also love Fresh Rose Face Mask. Really leaves my skin glowing and it has actual little pieces of rose petals inside. Mm -hmm. And the L'Occitane Shea Butter Cream, which is great for our dry weather that we have in California very often. So that's going to conclude our interview. Thank you so much, Antonella, for all your insight into the legal side of the beauty industry. Truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that concludes episode 11 of Fashion Law Network. Please stay tuned next Tuesday for episode 12. I hope you have a wonderful day and thank you so much for listening.